0: I dreamed death came the other night, and heaven's gates swung open wide. With kindly grace, an angel fair ushered me inside. And there, to my astonishment, stood folks I'd known on earth, some I'd judged and labeled as unfit, of little worth. Indignant words rose to my lips, but ne'er were they set free, for every face showed stunned surprise. No one expected me. Did you get that? Christian author Max Lucado says, we aren't good enough to judge. Can the hungry accuse the beggar? Can the sick mock the ill? Can the blind judge the deaf? In the same way, can the sinner condemn the sinner? Absolutely not. He goes on to say, be careful. The Peter who denies Jesus at tonight's fire may proclaim him with fire at tomorrow's Pentecost. The Samson who is blind and weak today may use his final strength to level the pillars of godlessness. A stuttering shepherd in this generation may be the mighty Moses of the next. Don't call Noah a fool. You may be asking him for a lift. You know, I've said before that I enjoy reading fantasy adventure novels like The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings is a great example of an epic fantasy in so much as it spans three volumes with multiple storylines and characters. It even has a prequel called The Hobbit. Now, for anyone who has read the books or even just watched the movies, most people seen the movies? Okay, if you've not read the books, you've probably seen the movies. Can you imagine how confusing it would be to jump in the middle of the story? If you started in the middle book, The Two Towers, and and you didn't know what led up to that through the Fellowship of the Ring. Well, going through the book of Romans will be like that to a certain degree if you miss a week. I just promise you it's going to be like that if you miss a week. What we will cover today is actually, it's part of last week's thought process, and that's just how Paul does it. It's an extension of the case that Paul is making about the gospel of Christ, the good news that our world needs so badly. I'd invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Today's passage starts in verse 26, but like I said, it's an extension of what we looked at last week. Paul is building a case for why the good news is so important And he continues that case in the same way that he was doing last week by telling us our desperate need for the good news. This is what it says, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 26 because of this, see how it kind of links to what was before, because he's he's actually referring back to what was before. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Now, he's talking about the non-believer who rejects God, even though they don't have an excuse to do so, because creation shouts that God exists, okay? That was last week's message. This week, he said, because of this, because they've rejected God, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done." They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. I love that. That's thrown right in the middle of there. You know, of all, the, of all the sins, you know, he throws that one right in the middle. They disobey their parents. Remember that? Remember the reference, moms and dads? So you can always go back to that. Okay. <laughs> They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? This passage of Scripture is a huge challenge for us. Because it's really easy to look at this passage of Scripture and go, well, that doesn't really apply to me. Paul's not talking about believers. But he is, folks. He is. He's going to come and bring the circle full so that we fully understand his point at how desperately the good news is needed. Let's take a moment and let's pray and let's ask God to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, I just want to come before you in in humility, Father, and, and just... Thank you. Thank you for your goodness, your kindness that leads us towards repentance. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that make it possible for us to enjoy this relationship we have with you through the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes this morning because this is for us. We have no excuse. We know the goodness and the kindness of our God. And it needs to be part of who we are because we are to be in the image of your son. So Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Remind us of the subtle ways, like Sally said, that Satan continues to bombard us with lies. And the fact that we need to reject those and hold tightly to this thing you call the good news, the good life, the abundant life that you've promised us is ours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Did you know that sin is not natural? Bet you didn't know that. Sin is not natural. We hear so much in the church about our sin nature and how everyone has inherited this nature from Adam and Eve. It's just who we are, right? We're, We're sinners. We do that. It's natural. We all do it. Even the book we're studying right now, the book of Romans, says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. So how can I say that sin is not natural? I say it because Adam and Eve were not created with the sin nature, folks. If they were, then God would have been guilty of condemning them to sin before they even had a chance to be or do otherwise. God is not capable of such a thing. He created mankind to live in fellowship with Him, which would not even be possible if sin were present in the garden. In fact, when sin entered into the equation, they had to leave the garden. Folks, we were created to be sinless. Therefore, sin is not the natural state of our being. That means that the whole world since the garden has been living in an altered reality, an unnatural condition. Therefore, it makes sense when you read verse 26 here. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged, get this, natural relations for unnatural ones. Does that make sense? In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust towards one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their perversion. You know, folks, the great lie of the gay lesbian culture today is just this, that they were born that way. That's what they say. That they're only living out their natural identity. Folks, that is not true. They choose the life that they have just like you do. We all do. The only natural part of the whole thing is that God gave us all the ability to choose. We're going to talk about sin and its power and its influence in the world in the weeks to come because Romans deals with it extensively, especially through chapters 5 and 6 of the book of Romans. But this one thing I want you to keep in mind, you were not created to be a sinner. You were created for fellowship with a perfectly holy God, a God who provided you, fortunately, with a pathway into holiness that you have the ability and the right to choose. If God created you for holiness and fellowship with him, then anything less cannot be natural. By virtue of reason and scripture, it is therefore unnatural to sin. Any questions? We all got it? Okay, everybody's on the same page. All makes sense. Don't want anybody to misunderstand any part of this. I am not preaching that we are sinless. Some people go there. We're not sinless. Okay, I am preaching that sin is not our natural condition. It is the unnatural, altered condition of a fallen world. It's really important that we understand this concept. We were created for so much more than this altered reality can provide us. We were created for righteousness so that we could have fellowship with a holy God. What Adam and Eve did when they failed in the garden. They started a genetic chain reaction worse than any nuclear meltdown that we could imagine. The whole world fell into an altered state of reality, an unnatural existence. The only cure for this unnatural state of being is the cross of Christ. It is the only thing that can return us to our created purpose. Now, I said all that because there is a great tendency in the church today to look at this passage from Romans and say, well, we don't do those things. We're not gay or lesbian, so hey, no worries. It doesn't really apply to us. And that may be true. After all, there's, there's a part of what Paul is doing here that you have to understand. He's talking not directly to the church here. He's talking to the culture that existed in Rome at this time. It was quite common for people in Rome at this time to engage in either gay or lesbian relationships freely, openly. You think our culture is perverted in this way? I tell you what, just read the history of the Roman Empire sometime. You will be shocked, maybe shocked and appalled. It was the norm for almost every level of society then. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 1.9, folks, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. What's happening in our culture right now isn't new. In fact, it's not even as bad as it was. Paul is addressing the culture of Rome as he's writing to the church in Rome. That is why he doesn't leave his argument hanging on just one type or one manifestation of sin. All sin, folks, is unnatural, and the good news of Jesus addresses it all. So Paul keeps moving in this direction. Look at the next four verses, verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. There's a lot of lesses in here, aren't there? Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things but also approve of those who practice them. Okay, okay. Just in case we thought this was only about one type of sin, Paul mentions another 21 sins and or categories of sin, including the statement that they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, etc., etc. Then he casually adds that they not only do these things, but they give approval to those who practice them. The word approval here, sunyodeko. <laughs> actually means that they take pleasure in it. They take pleasure in applauding. It's like they stand up and give an ovation for those who practice these things. Folks, here's the unnatural state that the world lives in. The same unnatural state that we engage in when we do the same things. The only difference between the world and us is that we are no longer slaves to the unnatural way of living. We have been set free. John 8, 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Listen, we do not have to, do not have to let the enemy have this kind of sway in our lives. Now, I just want to briefly, briefly, Give you the short list of Paul's examples here. He talks about envy. What's envy? That's where we bear ill will in the form of jealousy or spite towards another person. He talks about murder, to slay, which can be done both physically and verbally, okay? Jesus equated murder with hating, okay? He didn't say that there was any different. Strife, which means to quarrel or wrangle or manipulate, which I thought was interesting. Manipulation gets thrown into that thing called strife. Deceit, to trick people. Malice, to hate, but not just hate, but to hate in action, to actually do something that is hateful. Gossips, I thought this was the most fascinating one as I reached this word. It came up with one, one definition in the Greek. It came up with one definition, a word called kaliuminator. I'd never heard of that word before. So I looked up that word to find out what it meant. It means to speak ill of somebody, to say something that is hurtful. But you know where the root of the word comes from? Calculate. It is a purposeful hurting of another person. That's what gossip is. It is a personal attack on somebody that is designed to hurt them. Slanderers, which are backbiters or backstabbers, God-haters, which is pretty obvious, okay? The insolent, everybody know what insolent means? Okay, insolent is when you oppose the authority that has been placed over you. Whether a child is insolent toward his parents or whether we are insolent toward our government, okay? Insolence is the same thing. Arrogant, prideful, okay? Boastful, that's the expression of pride disobedient, got that with the children, right? Senseless, faithless, heartless. I think all those are kind of self-explanatory. You say, but Scott, wait a minute, wait a minute. Paul is talking about the they's, okay? They do this. Other people, the world, they do this. People without Jesus, right? Yes, that's exactly who he's talking about. Everybody nod your head yes. Yes. We got that. That's exactly who he's talking about. Because despite the fact that this is not what God desired for them, it's not what they were created for, it is what they have become in his sight out of their own choice. It is their unnatural condition. But get this, folks. Paul just isn't ragging on the community, okay? He's not ragging on the culture here. He has a point to make because he's writing to the church. What's Paul's point then? Well, look at the next verses. Therefore, you, therefore, have no excuse. Wait a minute, wait a minute. He was talking about they's and now he's talking about you. He just switched tactics on us, didn't he? Blindsided us. Came in around the corner and said, whoa, hey, you know, you thought I was talking about those people those terrible sinners. You, you therefore, have no excuse. What? 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 Now he's talking about me. Ow. What is, what, what is this about? You who pass judgment on someone else for whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So, when you a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things? Do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? Paul literally just turned the tables. While he might have been talking about the fallen world around them at that time, the fallen world literally around us at this time, now he's talking directly to us. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. Oh, wait a minute, Paul. We do the same things? Now, I, I, I might do some of those things, okay? Uh, I might gossip now and then, or, you know, I, I might, well, I might hate somebody that's really mean and ugly and, well, not God-fearing and... Okay. Well, I'm not one of those people, right? I might do some of those things. I certainly don't do all of them. Well, that's fine, except for what James says in chapter 2 of the book of James. James 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Ow. Okay, that hurts. All right, now I'm guilty of all those things because I did one thing? Folks, there's no gradient for sin. There's no sin that's worse than another sin. And there's no way out of once you sinned of being guilty of sin. It's just all sin. Sin is sin. So if we sin at all, in any way, shape, or form, then who are we to judge anybody else? Please, please understand this. Paul is talking about the redeemed here, judging the unredeemed. I get that. I understand it. He's talking about Christians judging the actions of the world. I am personally incredibly embarrassed. In fact, a lot of times I won't even tell people that I'm a pastor when I meet them because I am personally embarrassed by the fact that the world around us knows more about what the church condemns and hates than what the church approves of and loves. It's just the truth. In general, I would say that people think Jesus is pretty cool, guys. They really do. He's pretty amazing. Almost everybody thinks so. I've, I've rarely ever met a person that didn't think Jesus was awesome. At the same time, they think the church is judgmental and hypocritical. They'd like to hang out with Jesus if Christians would just go away. <laughs> Folks, that's the testimony that they level against us. Folks, we're supposed to be known by who we love and how we love. Not who we hate or what we hate. So Scott. You're telling me that I'm supposed to love the God-hater in the cubicle next to me at work or the one across the street from me at home No, I'm not telling you any such thing. I really am not. Jesus is. Get over it. Not my idea. God's idea. If it was my idea, you could just dismiss me as a radical idealist, couldn't you? Good luck dismissing God. That doesn't work for me, so I don't think it'll work for you. Folks, we are called to love, even our enemies, not to condemn and not to judge. Now, if we are called of God and are not allowed to judge the fallen world around us, how much more important do you think it would be to not judge one another within our group? We're not allowed to judge the God-haters, folks. How would we ever get away with loving or, or judging the ones who love God? Jesus. Jesus. When he was talking to those who would follow him, declared in the Sermon on the Mount, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus wasn't addressing the Pharisees, folks. He was addressing his own followers at that moment. There is no, I repeat, no room in the church of Jesus Christ for judgment by his people or of his people. Now, you've probably heard it said in the church to hate the sin but love the person, right? That's a pretty normal thing that we talk about, right? Well, no, I'm not judging that person. I love that person. I just hate what they do. I hate the sin, but I love the person. Good, fine. That, okay, that's a good idea. The only problem is that we don't seem to be doing a very good job of loving the person while we're hating their sin. We want to hold them at arm's length until they repent so they don't get any dirt on us. Jesus had a different approach, folks. A totally different approach. He went to dinner with them. He went to their houses, of all things. He loved them. He embraced them. He honored them, knowing full well their sin and not worried at all that he would be misunderstood by the religious or somehow soiled by the taint of their sin. One of the things I hope to convince you of as we walk through the book of Romans is your standing in Christ. I want you to know and understand and live your standing in Christ so completely that you can love like Jesus loved. Folks, it is in the book of Romans, we'll get to it in chapter 8, where he tells us that We are justified. You know what? That takes away judgment. Judgment is is trumped in being justified, but we are also glorified. In other words, we are also set apart for God in heaven, seated with Jesus in heavenly places, okay? Sin of the world around us cannot take that away from us. Do you get me? I remember when I was younger, I was young and I was immature, okay? And I didn't understand any of this. I still lived under the teaching of people who said, get as far away from sinners as possible. Separate yourself. That teaching still exists in the church today, by the way, okay? And and it comes from the Bible, by the way. You'll be surprised if you actually look it up. It's what it really means, but go ahead sometime. Kind of interesting. But I remember this when I was much younger. I was working at Round Table Pizza. It was, I was in the, my college years kind of thing. I was working a part-time job going to school kind of thing. And they hired a young man who was obviously gay, just very blatantly out there gay. I don't really have a problem with the young man until he tried to hit on me. Then it took everything that I could muster up of self-control not to knock his teeth out. I was so offended. Folks, I want to tell you today that was an immature young man because today I would walk up and wrap my arms around him and tell him how much Jesus loves him. And if he gave me the chance, I would let him know that this life he's living is not his natural state of being, but it is an unnatural state of being. And there is a way to live a much fuller life. Folks, as much as the, the world screams about the judgment of the church, we have to take this seriously. I'm not asking you to delve into their sin, that would be stupid but I am asking you to love the person right through their sin, right in the midst of their sin. You won't be tainted by it because your standing is secure in Christ. Offer them what Jesus offered you, life, and life incredibly more abundant than what they're experiencing. One last thing I want to cover before we quit this passage this morning. In verse 3 of chapter 2, it says, So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? What is this judgment thing? I thought our sins were covered by the blood of Christ, right? Why would we need to worry about escaping God's judgment? Listen, and and, and understand this. You are covered by the blood of Jesus. If you are a believer today, your sins have been wiped clean. Past, present, future, done in the blood of Jesus. There's no question about that. Your standing before God is settled and that is final. What happens when you choose to act in an unnatural mindset by judging is very simple. You place yourself in a position of being God over that person or persons that you judge. There's no room for any of us to usurp God's authority in somebody else's life. You want to judge somebody? Get in front of a mirror. It's the only safe place to practice judgment. But practice it with the heart of God okay? You're not allowed to berate yourself. Jesus died for you. Do you understand that? You are worth far more than you understand. But if you want to judge something, the mirror's a good place to go. There's no room for any of us to stand in God's place for another person's life. If we do, folks, I guarantee there are natural consequences for your unnatural behavior. I'm calling unnatural behavior sin okay? Jesus said very simply that you will receive back the measure by which you judge. Measure isn't just about quantity, folks. It's also about type. Basically, you practice judging others, calling out their sin, condemning their choices, then expect that they will do the same to you. You're going to get it back. It's not something that Jesus recommended that we try. In fact the only ones he said should even think about throwing stones are those who have no sin in themselves, right? I, I just I picture this in my brain, you know? I just picture this in my brain. What would have happened back then? And, 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 and I'm, I'm, this is pure conjecture. It doesn't happen in Scripture that I know of. It's just pure conjecture. What would happen back then? If somebody, let's say, found guilty of the sin of adultery and they're taken out to the edge of town, backed up against a wall and everybody's got a rock and it's time to put them to death. What would happen if that person picked up a rock themselves and said, go ahead, take your best shot, but you sin too, so be careful because I can throw back. I wonder how many people would have thrown. Jesus basically did the same thing. He just did it without picking up a rock. You who have no sin you get to throw the first stone. Consider, folks, consider the mercy of God towards you and the vastness of your sin before you try to condemn someone else's shortcomings. The riches of his kindness, his tolerance, and his patience toward us should rule our response to the sin in other people. Folks, I know far too much of my own sins and the depth of my wanderings from God into that unnatural way of living to place myself as a judge over anybody, even those who openly hate God or hate me. After all, do I not despise God and his loving kindness toward me when I choose to live in a way that is counter to who he created me to be and then redeemed me to be? Of course I do. It's something to consider. In fact, that really is the core of what Paul is trying to communicate here. He's really not bragging on the community. You know, he's not ragging on the culture of Rome. He's trying to get it across to the church. Love these people. Reach out to them. Embrace them like Jesus did. You don't have any room to push them away. You don't have a right to hold them at arm's length because you're sinners just like they are. You may not do the same things they do, but you do do things that are sinful. We all struggle with this part. It is the unnatural part of who we weren't created to be. Folks, we have been given so much. We have been loved so deeply. We have been honored so thoroughly and so freely by God. Should we ever have a different response to someone else than how God has responded to us? Not if Jesus lives in us. Matthew chapter 10, verse 8 says, freely you've received, freely give. Yesterday, I had to go to the mall to get a new belt. Mine had broken. No cracks about my weight there, okay? It just wore out. On the way home, we drove by a church that was putting out those little crosses on the lawn as a reminder of all the lives that are lost to abortion in our country every year. It's sort of a silent protest against one of the many unnatural ways that our culture expresses itself. I was reminded, however, of this story that had a very different approach. I want to close with this story from the Christian American. It's a magazine. It's, a, it's actually from October 1995, so some time ago. It reads this. Most of us were shocked in early August when Flip Benham, national director for Operation Rescue, Operation Rescue would be the antithesis of Planned Parenthood. Okay? It would be the opposite of abortion. It would be people trying to rescue babies. We were shocked when Flip baptized Norma McCorvey, the woman known as Jane Roe, in the U.S. Supreme Court's 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. The events leading to the baptism started with an apology. Earlier this year, Benham relocated the OR's national headquarters right next door to the abortion clinic where McCorvey worked. That same week, Benham spoke to McCorvey, He apologized for an earlier encounter when he had told McCorvey that she was responsible for millions of of abortions. "'I saw that those words really hurt you,' I told her. "'I asked her to forgive me.' She said, "'Oh, yes, it did hurt.'" But McCorvey forgave Benham, and the two struck up a friendship. Even before her conversion, McCorvey spoke freely about that friendship. "'I like Flip,' McCorvey told a reporter in March of this year, He's doing his thing. The unconditional love that Benham and other OR workers showed McCorvey eventually broke through, though. Through an icon to the pro-abortion movement, McCorvey, well, she felt used by them. She might have been their poster child, but she felt used. As she saw firsthand the love of Christ through her new friends, McCorvey eventually felt more comfortable with them than with her own clinic workers, She even dropped by the OR's offices and sometimes she would pick up the phone when nobody else was available. That love and acceptance led McCorvey to a Dallas area church where in late July she put her life in God's hands. Jane Rowe was who the pro-abortion side cared about most, Benham says, but God was always concerned with Norma McCorvey. The non-condemning love continues today. McCorvey has quit her job at the clinic. She now works for the OR. But she and Benham still do not see eye to eye on every issue. But that's okay. We've got to give her some time and some space, says Benham. Changes on such a personal level might take a little bit longer. McCorvey's conversion reminds all of us that the people who represent our opposition, even those whose actions we find most repulsive are still loved by God and are not beyond his reach. It moves this issue from politics to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That is where God wanted it anyway, says Flip Benham. Folks, we have a choice. We have a choice. We can have our holy huddle here in hold the world at arm's length. Or we can do what Jesus did. He walked out into that world, right into the midst of their unnatural lives, and he showed them what a natural life looked like. And like Flip, he loved them right where they're at, accepted them right where they're at, honored them right where they were at. And eventually, eventually people will come around to what is natural, to live a life before God that is natural, who he created us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed at how simple the gospel is and how simple the good news really is and how easy it is sometimes for us to take for granted the incredible love the incredible patience, the incredible tolerance you've had for us when we don't want to tolerate somebody else. But Father, the truth of the matter is very simple, isn't it? You love us. And you ask us to love other people in your name. So in Jesus' name, we want to commit ourselves this morning. And I'm just going to pray a prayer over all of us this morning. Father God, we repent. We repent of holding the world's unnatural condition against them, of holding our times of unnatural choices against even ourselves. We repent, Father, because it's time for us to embrace you. It's time for us to be Jesus and embrace others, no matter their sin, and to be embraced by you, no matter our sin so that we can be returned to a natural condition before you and before one another so that the world can see maybe for the first time in their life what a natural person actually looks like, actually behaves like. So, Father, we we repent of the unnatural and we grab onto, in the name of Jesus, who we were created to be, holy, blameless, before you and loving and embracing toward all who need to come to that same realization, to that same truth. In Jesus' name, amen.